Welcome to the Grace Baptist Church podcast for Sunday, July 17th, 2022. Today will be part two in an introduction to gospel community. If you'd like to follow along, please go to gracebaptistchurchnc.org, click the current sermons link at the top, and click today's manuscript. Welcome to Grace Baptist Church. Heavenly Father, thank you for another day, another morning that we can meet together as your people, people who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the gospel, faith came to our hearts through the hearing of the word, and for that we praise you, because we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but you In your great love and mercy towards us, you made us alive together in Christ and seated us in the heavenly places. So, Father, today we worship you in the name of Jesus. I pray that he would increase, that we would decrease. I pray that truth would be taught today and preached today. I pray the gospel would be proclaimed, the same word that Many of us in here heard and believed. Father, in spite of me, I pray that you would work greatly. Pray for great humility in our hearts as we listen and help, Father. I pray that non-believers would hear the gospel. Maybe not for the first time, but after a hundred times even. But it take effect. And they turn and look unto Christ and be saved. And know their sins are forgiven. For Christians, I pray that these words would be helpful to us as we also look unto Christ. So, Father, we give you this time this morning. We rely upon you and we trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The sermon this morning is is really part two uh, from last week. And I put... um, a book out on the table last week. The elders are reading a book together called Compelling Community. And uh, last week was really chapter one. The topic was community, how we live together. Um, and so last week was, was part one. This week is part two. And so the sermon is, is, again, is not mine. It comes from the book. Now, as I fill it in, it is, it is mine. But the, the thoughts and the progression come from um, that book, Compelling Community. So as we consider gospel community, supernatural community, I want to begin with a vision from the book of Ezekiel, from the prophet Ezekiel. He was exiled to Babylon, so it was right, it was before the temple had been destroyed, but yet many of them had been exiled into Babylon. So it was coming to the end of the time when Jerusalem would be destroyed in the temple, but it was still there. But Ezekiel was in Babylon, and as he was there, he saw a vision of the temple back in Jerusalem. And he sees the the glory of the Lord that had come down upon the temple. I Even this week, reading about Solomon, when he dedicated the temple, the glory, fire came down from heaven, the glory of the Lord filled the temple, and the priests could not minister. So he sees this vision of the glory of the Lord in the temple. And the glory of the Lord is pictured as resting on a, a wheeled throne. So there's, there's a throne that has wheels, and there's the glory of the Lord. And the throne is being supported by flying angels called cherubim. And then, from there in the inner part of the temple, the glory moves away. It begins to move, and it moves away from the holy place. Then it stops at the threshold, the outer parts of the, of the temple there. And then it stays there for a moment. Then it, the glory of the Lord continues moving all the way out to the east gate, the outer parts of the temple. And then it sits there. And then all of a sudden, the glory leaves. The glory is gone from the temple. It has left the temple. Yet, for the time being, nothing appears different. The temple, still there. God's people, still there. Life continues there at the temple as it did before. All is the same in many regards. 
So my question is for us, just for the church in general, for a, not the church in general, but for a local body of believers. Question is, what if the same thing happened here at Grace? Would we continue to meet and to preach, and to pray, to sing, and stand up and study the Bible? What would happen? And so the author asks some questions. Would some people immediately feel as though they don't belong anymore? Maybe true Christians in this place would feel, I don't belong there anymore. Or do they continue? Continue coming for mostly the same reasons that they did before. Do some friendships dissolve because there is no bond between Christians? Or do these relationships continue to survive because they were based on something else other than the power of the gospel? And that's really where we were last week. Another question he asks. Would they notice a conspicuous change in the conversations of the people in the church, or say in our home groups, maybe a new reluctance to engage in difficult talk about each other's lives? Or was the self-sacrifice in these relationships never dependent upon the Spirit of God in the first place? Another question, would we, or would that church begin to see a flood of requests for pastoral care and counseling because members are no longer bearing each other's burdens? Or would people always see the pastors or the staff as the professionals that they call upon in a time of need as opposed to calling upon the person sitting right next to you? These are good questions. The author of the book writes this, I would hope that our church would dis dissolve into chaos if the glory of the Lord left. Then he says, but I fear that many, speaking of our church in, in the context of America, I fear that many of us have built church community in such a way that Ezekiel's vision could come true in our own day and then we wouldn't even know the difference. I pray that never be the case at this church, at this community, at this place here at Grace. So this, these are questions I think we, that carry over from last week that we must <clears throat> ask ourselves about supernatural community. Have we built our community around the gospel? I hope we have. Another question, have we built our community around just the lips of a service of the gospel plus something else that doesn't need the power of the gospel at all? Has the supernatural power of the gospel become optional? Is it optional in your life? Is it optional in the life of the elders? Is it optional in our lives? If this is the case, then these are evidences that We've built a community that would continue even without the power of God upon that community. So, another question, what would this community look like? What are we giving up <clears throat> if our community is not a supernatural community? And so here in the book, the author turned, that's the introduction. What an introduction. And I can tell you, that gripped me, and I think it gripped the elders as well. And it's gripped a couple other folks who've read that chapter. But the author then <clears throat> turns in the book, and he says, When we are not focused upon the supernatural power of the gospel in our church, then we compromise two essential parts of our commission of Christ. One is evangelism. Two is discipleship. And I'll explain that more in a moment. But let me ask a question. If someone says to you, what is, what is our mission? What is your mission at Grace Baptist Church? What is your mission? How would you answer that? Well, the answer is, I hope this is what you would answer. And we've talked about this before. What are Jesus' last words to his disciples? 
before he ascended to heaven. Matthew 28, 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to command, excuse me, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I will be with you, or I am with you always to the end of the age. So here we see two, two essentials. We are to, one, evangelize. We are to tell people about Jesus. That's why go, and the implication there when we baptize them is that we've told them first, right? And then they've believed. So there's evangelism. And then two, <clears throat> we are to disciple. So that's just a word that we use in the English to the second part of that command, that we are to teach them to obey everything that Christ has commanded us. So let's just think a, min a minute about evangelism and our evangelism and what he is speaking about in this book. And, and, and where I'm at again, let me remind us, if we've lost the supernatural, if we've lost the gospel, then we compromise our evangelism. He says, the author <clears throat> emphasizes the foundation of our evangelism. The supernatural part of our community, particularly love. Love. You, know, you might say, well, what in the world does love have to do with evangelism? Well, he goes on to, to speak about this. <clears throat> he says, the way that we love one another as a church is what gives power to our evangelism. And he gets this <clears throat> in, from John 13. Verses 34 and 35. We know this, these words. Jesus says to his apostles, his disciples there. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you. That you, what? Love one another. Just as, how? Just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. And so that's not a subjective type of love. It is a very concrete, objective love, as we will see. He says this, by this, in other words, by this love for one another. What does he say next? By this love, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. So he's saying those on the outside will see that we love one another, and that gives power to our evangelism and our telling. They'll see and they'll know. So what kind of love is this, though, as I just alluded to? It is the love of Christ. And what did, what, how does God in Christ show his love? Well, we could say lots, but I think primarily of Romans 5, 8. But God showed his love towards us. So here we are as Christians today. How does God love us? He sent his son to, the, to this world to die on the cross, but he showed his love towards us, Romans 5, 8. And who are we? Towards us and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So as sinners, if you take that out, that is everything that is contrary to the glory of God. We are sinners. That makes us what to God in and of ourselves, in our sin. As we think about ourselves and our own glory, what does that make us? It makes us the enemies of God. By nature, we are children of, of great wrath. We talk about that often. In this way, Christ came and laid down his life for his enemies, for sinners. Now, the world may lie, lay its life down. The world has love. That's the thing. But Jesus says there's a kind of love that people will see 
and it will undergird your evangelism, and they will know. It is the kind of love that, that Christ had in dying for his enemies. The world loves. The world will often lay down its life for its friends. We've seen it in pictures, in stories, in books, in everything that we've heard throughout our lives about those who have laid down their lives for a valiant cause or for their friend. And I'm sure many of us here, if you were, if you were with your best friend in the spur, spur of the moment and something was going to happen, you would probably lay down your life. Many of you would lay down your life for your friend or for one of your family members. And the world does this. But the world does not lay down its life for its, its enemies. This is why Paul prays in Ephesians 3. Which, by the way, this week at our house, we met for just a few of us to pray, and we prayed this prayer. Here's Ephesians 3. Paul prays that we might be rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints, what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So when the local church, when we defy natural explanation by the way we love one another in the same way Christ loves us, this confirms the natural, excuse me, the supernatural power of the gospel, which gives great power to our witness. Now the author of the book he describes, he moves on to describe the early church. And I'm just going to summarize this the best way from my sermon. I'm not going to read from this for just a moment. But he says, basically, what showed the power of evangelism in the early church? Do you remember? It was, if you read Acts, <clears throat> it, speaking in tongues was there as they went to there in Jerusalem. Then they went out further to Samaria. Then they went further out to the Gentiles and the other nations. With each one of those occasions, you see the miraculous gifting of tongues there. Not only that, you see great miracles. Signs and wonders with each advancement of the gospel. But then if you go back and you read Paul's later writings to the churches, for the most part, <clears throat> you don't see these miraculous signs. Well, the, the author of the book has a theory, and I, I like it. He basically says that the church was not established to the point to where there was supernatural power. Where? Not in the tongues and the miracles, but in the power of the congregation to love one another. That's the new commandment. And I like that theory, but either way, the point still stands. If we do not love one another as Christ has loved us, we become like the world. And you can see if that doesn't happen, what kind of a community are we? How supernatural are we? We compromise our evangelism. And that's what he's saying. I believe at the end of the day, <clears throat> and I've always said this, no matter where we are on the health <clears throat> standard as a church, it will be the love of Christ that will compel you to do what's right. It will be, at the end of the day, it will be the love of Christ that causes me to be a good husband or a good father or a good <coughs> work, <coughs> excuse me, a good worker. Or, children, look up here at me. If you want to be obedient to your parents, it will be as you think about how Christ has loved you for God so loved the world. At the end of the day, it will be the love of Christ. That's why I think Paul prays for those in Ephesus that they would know the breadth and the length and the width and the height, the greatness, the insurmountable love of Christ. That is one of the reasons <clears throat> that we continually preach the gospel of Christ and his love for us. So, if we are a community that, that is not based upon this kind of love as we love one another, then we compromise our evangelism. Second, the author says that we compromise discipleship. So not only do we compromise evangelism, 
We also compromise discipleship. Now, if you would, turn with me. This will be the only time we look at the Scriptures together, but turn with me to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, verses 11 to 16. Let me preface this. This is how we see, or this passage is a picture of what it looks like in the local body to have evangelism, especially discipleship, together. This is a picture. This is, when we read this, keep this in mind, this is what discipleship looks like in the local body for us right here. Verse 11, and he gave, and God, this is God gave, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. So that starts with God. He's giving these folks to do what? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until, notice these words, all of us, right here, till we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, Notice these words, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. I think of a small child, a two or three year old. Parents have every, they have great influence and power to, to tell those children what to do and to move them, tell them not to go here, don't touch that. And all of these things, the great influence that that child has to go wherever the parent says. And I, <clears throat> in the same kind of way, we are not to be like those who just go here and go there and go there. We are to be grounded in the gospel. But let me keep reading. So that we may no longer be children. So this is, the, this is in the, the context of discipleship, good discipleship. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, there's the context, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let me put a little parenthesis here. I am not above anyone, or neither are your elders above anyone in this room, because we are elders. I am just like you. And those who come to my house often, hopefully you see that and you know that. The only reason I am a pastor and an elder and even who one who gets, <clears throat> who the church takes care of financially, and the only reason your other elders are elders now is because the church has seen in the scriptures, as God says right here, and he gave some apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. God has given us to you. And it's just a recognition, and we're just one part of the body, the finger, or the head, or the foot. But everyone else has that part. And so the focus tends to be, I think, often in discipleship, like I read earlier, we tend to go just to the pastors. But this chapter here in Ephesians 4 speaks of the, all the entire body. There is no lesser person in the body of Christ. So I think that, that that's what we tend to do. In our context of elders and home group leaders and teachers who preach and teach and live out the gospel in order to equip the, in order to equip the, equip the saints, we tend to just focus more on them. But if we stop here again, we miss the emphasis of the entire congregation. Look again at verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up of the body of Christ. That's the body until we all attain the unity of the faith. In verse 14, so that we, 
And so when we see this happening like this, supernatural community in this regard, then what happens? We're no longer tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine. Focus is on the entire congregation, and all of us grow in unity and in maturity. The author says this, here's a quote from the book, Nothing safeguards the gospel quite like the supernatural community of faith that gospel preaching produces. Lose what is supernatural about that community, and I fear in a generation or so you will eventually lose the gospel. May that never be here at Grace. So by way of application for us today, he says in the book, Christian community, Christian community loves one another, makes disciples of one another, makes faith plausible. When I am tempted to believe the world's lies, community helps me remember that God's truth is perfect. Repeat that. Return to faith after a moment of doubt or temptation a dozen times over, and you have a typical week in my life. In other words, I think he's looking at his own heart. He sees his own sin. He sees his own doubts. And then when he comes to church on Sunday and he sees all these people that have power, the power of God living in them, and they love one another, what does he say? That helps him go on to next week. It's not just the preaching of the Word. It is the community of how we love one another. And he says, repeat that a hundred times and you have a faithful week in the life of the church. Repeat it a million times over and the gospel is preserved for the next generation. This means for us that the extent, to the extent that we hold on to the gospel, together we hold on to it. Not just one person from the top, but all of us is the extent to which we build a supernatural community. Hebrews 10. We haven't got there yet, by the way. We'll be back in Hebrews chapter 9 next week. But Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold fast our confession. Confession of our hope without wavering. For he who is promised is faithful. And let us consider, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So there's, if we do not have supernatural community, then we compromise our evangelism, and we compromise our discipleship. Now, at this point in the book, the author asks the question, what makes community supernatural? So here's the meat this morning, I think, of when we ask that question, you're thinking, well, what helps us? What causes us to be a supernatural community? He gives two things. One is supernatural forgiveness. Two, supernatural love. So let's begin with forgiveness. Let me retell a story from Luke chapter 7. There, so listen to this story. Jesus enters the home of a Pharisee who invites him to come to his house and have dinner. And his name is Simon. And as they are eating, who knows how long it had been into the, into the meal, but they reclined on the ground there, <clears throat> one to another sitting around as they ate. And as they were there, Luke tells us a sinful woman. So this would have been a woman, who knows, prostitute, engaged in, in, in bad things her whole life, and the whole community knew this woman was a sinful woman. And I, remember, I think about the woman at the well who had, you know, five husbands, and the next one was not her own. And so here was this woman. She comes in, and what does she do? She brings very expensive, expensive perfume, and she pours it on Jesus' feet. There in the middle of the meal. And then she takes her, apparently his hair's not like mine. I couldn't wash anybody's feet with my hair. Somebody who's got long hair. She takes her hair and starts wiping Jesus' feet with the ointment. 
And you know what Simon does? Jesus allows this to happen. Simon, is, the, the Bible tells us, he's thinking to himself. And here's what he's thinking. If this man were really a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman this is. And he would not have touched her because the Gentiles didn't touch that which was unclean. So to this Pharisee, this woman was unclean. But yet, Jesus allows her to touch him, which in that Pharisee's minds would have defiled Jesus. So therefore, there's, he's not the prophet we're looking for. And then, Jesus takes this time to teach Simon. So then Jesus tells a parable about two men who are in debt. One of them is in so much debt, could you imagine having all the trillions of dollars that the debt that the United States has? <laughs> that be your debt, and you say, i got to pay that back. And <clears throat> That's person number one. The other person also has a debt, but his debt is, is much smaller. But the point is, neither one of them could pay the debt back. Like, there's just no way possible could it happen in a week or a month or a year or in the lifetime of the person. There's no possibility to pay the debt back. So what happens? The lender, the person who gave him the money, he says, I forgive you debts. You don't have to pay me, even though you don't owe me a lot, but you don't have to pay me and you owe me more. But either one of you guys no longer has to pay me. And so Jesus says to Simon, the Pharisee, which one will love the moneylender more? And Simon answers, it doesn't take, we would all answer the same today as you hear this. Which one loves more? The one who has been forgiven the debt, the greatest debt, will love the one who forgives the moneylender more. And Simon says the one with the most. Then Jesus sums up the parable, parable by speaking about this sinful, sinful woman who comes in and washes his feet with her hair. He says, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves. Now, both of them love, but he loves little. But both of them love, but which one loves more? You see, the Pharisee thought that he was forgiven because of how much he loved God. So he thought, I love God, therefore God has forgiven me. A lot of people in our world think like that. But the parable teaches the exact opposite. Love for God does not produce forgiveness. It's the other way around. Forgiveness is the cause of love. Love for God does not produce forgiveness. Forgiveness is what causes love. And so this woman, her love was not the ground of her pardon. In other words, God didn't forgive her because she loved. But her love was proof that she had been forgiven. Brothers and sisters, we are those people as Christians whose sins are forgiven through the atoning death of Christ. And our forgiveness is supernatural. So this is the point of the author. It's supernatural because you can't repay it. And neither can I. And our forgiveness, this means our forgiveness is supernatural. We are sinners, brothers and sisters. Let's just think about our sins just for a moment. Think of all of your sins this week. Maybe lack of love for your neighbor. Maybe selfishness as you absorb yourself in self-pity because maybe you didn't get your way. This happens all the time and we just disguise it with good things, thinking it's somebody else's fault that I'm being treated the way I am. Maybe you've been disobedient children to your parents. We can think of so many sins. Maybe you have doubted God this week. Maybe you have not trusted God in His Word to do what He says He will do in your life. 
We could go on and on. As sinners, we are by nature utterly void of the righteousness that God requires and we cannot pay back our sins in any way, shape, or form to make ourselves righteous. Our debt is too large. It's impossible for us to make or generate in some way. This is what the world's trying to do. It's the difference between Christianity and the world is self-based righteousness. And we are without excuse. And we are without defense. If you were to stand before God and He were just to look at you and your sins, you would have no defense. Our fundamental problem is not that we lack meaning in this life. Our problem is an insurmountable debt called sin before a holy God. And our salvation is not conceivable by any human imagination. If God overlooks our sin, then what does that make God out to be? You might think, well, God didn't see that. Well, we know He does, but but what if He were to overlook your sin and say, well, you know, Kristen's okay, but Levi's not. Well, God doesn't work like that. He doesn't work as a math professor who grades on the curve. No, there is a standard, and it is His own righteousness, His own holiness. And so our salvation, God forgiving our sins, we cannot produce this on our own. It is in, we have an inconceivable amount of debt. My favorite words in all the Bible have always been Ephesians 2, verse 4. I used to have it on my computer screen thing going across. But, dot, 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 God. There's our hope. But while we were still yet in our trespasses, but God commanded His love towards us while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. But we stay back in the bud if God doesn't get involved. We are completely, it, our salvation is completely, our forgiveness is completely supernatural because we cannot do it. But God, that, the best words in the Bible. 2 Corinthians 5.21, speaking of Christ, for our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Brothers and sisters, what makes us a supernatural community is the fact that our sins are forgiven. The world's sins are not. And I'm going to apply that in, in a minute. But let's move on to another truth, supernatural love. So what makes us a supernatural community? <clears throat> forgiveness, supernatural forgiveness, and two, Supernatural love. Now, this truth just flows from the first in our parable. What caused the love? The forgiveness. It wasn't the love caused the forgiveness. I mean, the, <clears throat> the love caused the forgiveness. The forgiveness caused the love. We love God to the extent that we understand His forgiveness. So, I will say that to, if you are not a Christian here today, then maybe you've never been forgiven. Because if you don't love God then there's proof that you have not been forgiven. And you're still just like this Pharisee, Simon. Our love for God flows from His forgiveness to us. Those who've been forgiven much will love much. There's no exceptions. 1 John 4, verse 20. If anyone says, I love God, and what does the world say? The world says, I love God, I love God. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother or sister, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother or sister. So this love allows us as a community to live in a way that the world does not understand. There is nobody, let me just say this by way of application. If you are a Christian here today, there is nobody or nothing you cannot and must not that forgive. So if you say, I'm a Christian, but you have not forgiven your brother or sister, not just in your words, but in your heart. I talk to so many people, and I'll be honest. And I hope this is not the case in this room. Who, folks who say, I'm a Christian, but yet will not speak to their father, 
or their mother or their brother for years. And I would say to them, there's a problem. There's a problem here. You call yourself a Christian, but yet you cannot forgive that person no matter what it is. And so we as Christians, what makes us a supernatural community is that we have been forgiven and we love one another. And the application is by forgiving those around us. A cold heart that does not love says one of two things. Either that person has not been forgiven, which I've just said, or we'll give the benefit of the doubt here. He or she does not appreciate the depth of forgiveness. So it's, it's immaturity, okay? We'll give the benefit of the doubt. If you are in that boat this morning, repent. Ask God to give you grace to forgive. It is immaturity. It's just, in all honesty, immaturity. So brothers and sisters... As we think about this supernatural love, this supernatural community, we love how? As we've been loved. See, our debt is insurmountable, but yet God commanded his love towards us and he sent his son. And all of our actions flow from our understanding of the love of Christ. And this ability comes from the power of the Holy Spirit as we grow in our understanding of what Christ has done for us. I don't know if you've noticed <clears throat> in our home groups through the years, but living together is quite messy. It's messy enough in our own homes when you've got a rebellious kid or you've got an issue going on over here with a sickness or you've got all kinds of sin issues in your home. It is messy so we like to mask it because really people don't know what's going on in our homes, really. Except, as I've said before, you know what's going on in your homes. All of us do. Kids, parents, everybody. But when we get out here, then we, we mask it a bit. We mask it a lot, probably. But we've also found out in our home groups that living with other Christians is messy. And it takes work and effort to reach out, doesn't it? And to say, I want to love you because Christ is loved me. It's very, very <clears throat> messy. And so this is why we need supernatural love in this community. Now, in conclusion now, which we're finishing up the sermon here in the next five minutes or so, but it, <clears throat> as the book goes, after speaking about this forgiveness and this love that makes us supernatural, he gives two guiding principles concerning supernatural community. Particularly, he says, how, he, he brings up the question of how do elders and leaders choose what to do in their decision-making? Because we have decisions all the time. Countless decisions. Should we choose this ministry leader, this home group leader? Should we give this money or that money? Should we allow home groups to visitors or just for members? Or how can we help a brother or sister who is just isolated? How do we visit? There's all kinds of pastoral issues going on in the body. And so he says basically there are two principles that definitely your elders need to remember. And we as body need also to remember these things. Two principles. Here they are. One, regeneration precedes community. In other words, something has to happen in the heart before there is an actual supernatural community. And two... Theology precedes practice. So first, regeneration precedes community. I've spoken with pastors. I meet with a number of them, and I have through the years. I'm thinking one in particular. He came to a church out not too far from here, and he was there for about a, a year. And I, I'm, I can't even tell you the things that he said. He said, John, I am convinced that 90% of our congregation of about 100 90% of them are lost because I'm looking at their lives and they are no different than the world. And not only that, the things that are going on in the church, he's like, I, and it was literally living hell for him. And he ended up leaving some years later, but he stayed with them for a long, long time. And so his point is that we have to have something supernatural within us 
which we call regeneration, before we can have community. And so we must keep that ever before us. And we must, so as a pastor, what must we do? We must continually preach the gospel. I and your elders and your home group leaders must keep saying, this is what God's love looks like in Christ through all of the Bible. And then give the gospel, maybe not as explicitly every Sunday, but it'd be something that we get in our home groups, we get in our conversations, at least from the elders, and we get here at Grace. Continue to preach the gospel. And then we will, Lord willing, see this community, this kind of community. So I say to you this morning, if you are really born again and you truly have the Holy Spirit, your elders don't have to motivate you so much to act as a Christian. And I, I've seen this in 14 years through speaking, especially not, not so much with us here, I hope. I hope. I hope I'm not naive. But churches where a lot of people are lost, what do the pastors end up doing all the time? They're just motivating, motivating, motivating them to do good. Motivating them to come. Motivating them to get involved with this group. Motivating them to do, to love this person. Motivating them to practice. It's just a big thing. Of, but if the community has the Holy Spirit, how do you think how much motivation comes from me? Can I out-motivate the Holy Spirit? We cannot. That is why we must pray for it. And again, we prayed for it this week, and we're going to keep praying for it. Pray for one another that lost people here, the Holy Spirit would come in power, and they would be saved. And then, what kind of motivation will be needed? <laughs> well, there, there's still plenty of it, trust me, from your elders, but you're getting the picture. If we don't have power in the heart, we don't have power anywhere else. We're just going to keep coming. We're just like the vision from Ezekiel right from the beginning, are we not? Just keep coming, keep doing, but yet, supernatural community. So, regeneration precedes community. Finally, theology precedes practice. Some people think that theology divides, and it does. <laughs> but it, it divides in a good way. So we, people that say we shouldn't think about theology, think, well, we shouldn't go too deeply because then that's going to offend somebody. But this is absurd. Remember that our love comes as we understand. And what do we understand? Go back to the first part of the sermon. What, the first thing I talked about the, to, to, for a supernatural community. What do we understand? It is forgiveness. Can you exhaust the depths of, really, all this Bible, all this is, is one big, huge book about God saving us in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in saving us, what does He do? He forgives our sins. This is powerful. This is theology. So therefore, you must desire to go deep. And don't think, I've heard some people say, oh, I'm not a theologian. Yes, you are. And I think that the love for theology comes from a heart that loves God, a heart that has been forgiven. So I know these are, especially at the end right now, are coming across very, I don't know. I don't know how they're coming across. But I hope that what you are hearing, especially in this regard, if you're thinking, man, I don't know if I'm a Christian, then I would say to you right now, as soon as the service is, is finished here in just a moment, find your parent Find your friend, find one of the elders, find another believer and say, I don't think what John is describing is me. Now, you might say, I, 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 that's kind of what I want, but that's not the motivation to come to God, is it? The motivation is Christ died for my sins, and that's what I want more than anything. Whether you are young or whether you're older or old, it doesn't matter. So, he is the same God, the same Son, the same Holy Spirit that changes. So I would, I would ask you and plead with you, do not leave this place unless you've talked to someone and said, even now, in your heart, maybe I hope forgiveness has come. Even while I'm preaching, 
We don't know often when it comes. But we know, those who've been forgiven, know that it has come. And we can say, even as we asked, Greg asked last week, do you believe, Nick, Jesus died for your sins? And he said, yes, I do. So with that in mind today, I pray also that, that you are, if you are Christians, members here at Grace, you pray for your elders as we read through this book. And, and then we move back into the Word next week with Hebrews 9. I know these have been two very different types of sermons, and it's been a little longer I think today, but it, Pam, it is what it is. Such is life. And, so, and I pray that we would not grow weary in doing good. I pray we would not come through the motions and go through the motions, that each one of us would pray that God would change our, my heart. With that in mind, let's, let's pray together. Lord God, may we never be Ezekiel's vision and I know that we won't as your church as a whole, but here in every local body that's meeting all over the world, Father, even as we read the book of Revelation, we see seven churches that, that needed to, five of them needed to repent of something serious or the Lord Jesus would come and remove the candlestick, the light. Father, do not do that, I pray here at Grace. Give us grace to be humble, to look under Christ, to be saved, to live out our lives. Father, it's not how we begin this race, it's how we finish. It's a marathon. Give us grace, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grace Baptist Church podcast. You can listen to past sermons at podbean.com. Search Grace Baptist Church, China Grove, to find us. You can also find us on Apple Podcast. Search Grace Baptist Church, China Grove. You can also join us at the South Rowan YMCA, 950 Kimball Road, China Grove, North Carolina. We meet on Sunday mornings at 930 for fellowship and service starts at 10. Thank you for listening and remember to be intentional in making disciples this week.